Hello. Hi, Jeff. Hello. Nice Hello. to see you. Nice to see you too. Yes. I think the last time we saw each other was in Australia a couple of years ago. Oh my God, that's probably true. Yeah. I think that's true. <laughs> yeah, and this is very exciting. So. Yeah, no, it is. Thanks. Thanks a lot. It's really, um, it's, it's great. I mean, it's, it's interesting because it, it gave me pause. It was a good moment when I heard your, when you, when you sent me, you know, mm. would, I, would I be interested in doing it? I was actually out of town on a <clears> retreat <throat> and a sort of semi-retreat. So it was good. Gave oh, me perfect. some time to think a little bit about it. And, yeah. Great. Yeah. So why don't we just jump in? Okay. Um, yeah. So what I wanted to talk to you about was the time that you had spent, because I had heard these stories from you some years ago about uh, a summer that you spent, I think, having daily walks with uh, the great Nisargadatta. And this would have been before the publication of his famous book, I Am That, and before he became as world famous as he later would. Um, so maybe, first of all, if you could just tell me, you know, what, what's the time frame that we're talking about for this for these encounters yes um well the first time i i met him i think was 1977 uh i was 23 i think yeah oh no 22 and then i met him twice actually i spent two periods with him and interestingly the second time was after i am that had been published in the west so it was completely different. The little tiny room was packed. But the first time, as you said, it was before that. It was published in India, but it wasn't in the West. And there was literally no one there. And how had you heard of Nisargadatta at that time? I was, um, I was living in India. I'd been there about three years. and uh, Oh, two years, two and a half years. And I was... By that point, I was very young, but I was a passionate seeker. I didn't even know when I went to India, that's what I was. But I was very compelled to go. And I, I think, you know, I had studied Asian philosophy, South Asian philosophy and language and Sanskrit and everything. So I had something in me was calling me there. And when I was there, by that point, I was living in South India in Tiruvannamalai, which again was a very undiscovered place at that point, very quiet. Um, it was very different to, the, to now. And uh, there were probably about six of us, six Westerners who were living there at the time um, over a period of a few years. And, and, and I was, just, yeah. just for those people who might not know, mm -hmm. that is where Ramana Maharshi's ashram is. That's right. Yes. So that's right. why it's that's why it's well known today and now has many, many exactly. travelers. Many, many travelers. I think there are literally I've heard thousands there in the winter now. Literally. Mm -hmm. It's become and it is, it's a very powerful, uh, it's an extraordinary place. So I'm not surprised. But I was uh, there you know before decades ago and I was there really because I was there because of Ramana Maharshi and his teaching, I'd come across that. And uh, of course, he, he was no longer there. He'd passed away uh, in 1950. But his ashram was extraordinary and still is, and very, very powerful, very focused place. 
And so I was there studying his teachings and really doing a lot of solitary retreats and like weeks and months. It was such a, a very isolated, not isolated place, but it was very remote in a certain way mm-hmm. and uh, very simple. The life, it was really simple. So it was perfect uh, for sadhana. And I was doing that. And um, one day someone there, one of the other people who were living there, came up and gave me the, the manuscript or the book of uh, I Am That, you know, thrust in. At the time I was living in this little hut, um, we were all living in little huts and uh, I had, um, I didn't even have electricity, but I started reading this book, Jeff, I Am That, and I couldn't, literally couldn't put it down. And mm. I, I think I spent, read the whole thing in one reading practically all mm. o- overnight. I know it was overnight. Mm-hmm. And by the next morning, I, uh, I just felt, I realized he was still alive and that mm-hmm. that was a lot of the great masters had passed on. And I thought, you know, I'm going to go see him. So I, I made my way to, to Mumbai, to Bombay, which was Bombay then. And uh, that's how I came to see him. I was immediate for me, because the transmission from that book, as you know, is so powerful and it's as powerful now as it was then. Right. Absolutely. I mean, it's certainly, mm. I mean, it's one of the timeless classics of, of both Advaita yeah. Vedanta and just enlightenment literature in general. Absolutely. Yes. No, it really is. And I think, and I was just looking at it again, actually, John, today, because I knew we were going to do this, this, uh, this, have this talk. And it was very interesting because that's a translation. That's an English translation. He wrote, he spoke a Marathi, right? mm-hmm. his, his local language. And the transmission is, is direct. And in fact, my experience of being with him, it's funny, Jeff. I can't even remember him, it being translated. I had a very, very good translator, Mr. Patan, very lovely man uh, who came and translated. Uh, but yeah, it comes through the English as well. Mm, beautiful. Mm. So, so describe for us the the initial meeting so you've you obviously you had to travel quite a distance Um, yes that's right i imagine you were doing it on uh an indian train and probably not first class Uh, definitely not first class (laughs) (laughs) no i think it took a couple days to get there even turvanamala it was a in those days was a five-hour bus ride to madras and then the train and yeah, mm. but it was, um, that was how we did it then. I mean, it's an, it was a very, very different time. And sometimes I find it hard to, because I go back to India, remember how different, there was no internet, there were no phones. You know, it was very, you're really in a different place. And, well, it's interesting, just uh, as an aside, part of the reason, there's a couple of reasons I wanted to do this interview with you. One, because you had such a unique opportunity to spend time with Nisargadatta. And I feel like people, there's so many people that would benefit from hearing about your experience and, and gaining the insight from a firsthand account of such a great saint. Uh, and second of all, because there's, you know, unlike, you know, you were a very early pioneer of Eastern spirituality. And, you know, you would, sounds like you were traveling to India when you were, uh, 20 years old, 19 or 20 years old. 21, I think. Yeah. 21, and and living there at a time when, yes, it wasn't anything like it is today, where you know everybody has their cell phones now and there's cars everywhere and 
the internet is is all over. It was even before the first days when I went to India, when you know you had those little STD booths. Everywhere. Yes, at least right. you could fax. You know? Exactly. I was a late traveler <laughs> comparatively. Uh, right. you, know, you were there when it really was very remote, and so it must have been even to be in India. In those days, you must have really felt remote and and quite separate from the Western world, quite out of touch with people in the West. I mean, I don't even know how you would communicate with people uh, if you if you wanted to. That's right. Um, it was inter- That's very true. I mean, literally, the only way you could communicate was every few months, if you knew where you were going to land in a big city or a big town they had what they call post-restant, which is where they had a place that Westerners could receive mail. You would go there and pick up your, your mail every few months. So mm. it was a, I mean, now I feel I was so lucky, Jeff, and really privileged in a way to be able to have that experience because there was no, one of the things around it that made it so powerful uh, was that there was no reference point that was familiar. Right. And that was very, I think, very helpful, actually, because the the usual things that we grab hold of, you know, to mediate our experience or to interpret it really weren't there. And I had actually chosen to go by myself to that was a conscious decision um, Mm -hmm. for that. Partly for that reason is I really wanted. And funny, you said I was a pioneer, but I was following uh, people like Paul Brunton and John Blofield. And they were my inspiration. Um, And I was a little bit after actually Ram Dass, um, Mm -hmm. after them. Uh, So, yeah, I was in that, that period. But yeah, the, the simplicity and the remoteness, I think, really was really helped in a way. If you're mm. a seeker, um, it was challenging too, <laughs> but there was something it opened you up in a way that I think was really, yeah, really, mm. really helpful. It, it really created an opportunity to let go of yes. everything familiar. Absolutely, and, yeah. You know, I mean, I didn't travel to India until 1993, so it was almost two decades after your first visit. Right. Um, even then, it was like entering a magic kingdom. Uh, yes. And, and you immediately felt like you had no connection home. I mean, you couldn't find an STD booth in facts. That's right. <laughs> yes. That's if you right. wanted to. But uh-huh. you know, compared to the way that, that we're connected today, you felt pretty much like you could drift off and disappear and nobody would know it. Uh, That's right. Mm-hmm. There's something very liberating about that fact that you were kind of you were really very off the grid and that's right Mm -hmm. uh, so at the time when you were there i mean you were really off the grid (laughs) Uh, that's right that's really true and there was a sense of uh, incredible uh, yeah freedom in that i think and no horizon in a way Mm. you know there was was way open and um and i was fortunate i think because um I felt very at home in that. And I immediately, Mm. almost immediately in India, even though it felt very strange on one hand, it was a completely different culture, but I also felt deeply at home, which I think was, you know, right. Really good. And and so before you traveled to see Nisargadatta, you were living in a hut, which I picture as sort of a one room little hut. Yes. Uh, And I imagine uh, that you were, mostly doing spiritual practice and then 
you know, doing the things you have to do to get food and to keep clean and et cetera. But that basically you were living uh, a life of sort of a solitary practitioner, uh, almost a monk. Yes, that's right. Yes. In fact, um, I had a, exactly that. I had a little hut. It was a thatched hut. It was adobe. It was an outside well. Um, it was a few hundred meters from the Ramana Ashram down. There were two little lanes at that point, which now are very populated, but then they weren't. And it was in a, it was a bigger, bigger house building in the compound. And this was a little hut. And uh, I was very lucky because um, I had a friend, an Indian woman who made food once a day. And so, you know, I ate, I ate that and fruit. So everything was very uh, minimal. You know, the mm. distraction wise. So it was a perfect place to, to mm -hmm. do practice and to, fo and to just give yourself completely to, uh, to pra I mean, it was amazing time, Jeff. I mean, people were totally on fire with that. It was, it was a wonderful opportunity. And I was re would read a little bit every day of Ramana's teachings as a kind of take me in, in a way. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah. And what was your experience of practice like at that time? Um, it was amazing, actually. I had already, it was, I had started with, uh, I'd done some Theravada practice, Buddhist practice, uh, initially. That's what, in a way, I guess my, was my first real experience of meditation and discipline. Uh, that's a very, as you know, it's very disciplined. And mm -hmm. I appreciated I'd done that for a couple of years or a year and a half, something like that, and done some pretty long, extensive retreats. And I felt like that got me had helped me to learn to focus and to yeah to sit quietly still mm. and I struggled with that initially because I was so young but um but I actually was had a fairly powerful experience early on in that practice and so then that that gave me the the motivation and the passion really and so when I by the time I was in Tiruvannamalai I I was just I loved it <laughs> you know I would I um I was yeah young. My body was you know very flexible and everything. So I, I would just. Um, it felt like a time of extraordinary depth and exploration, and ex it was very exciting. Mm. Yeah. And you were there for before you got uh, the copy of I Am That delivered to you. You'd already been there for a couple of years. Uh, no, about a year, I think. Maybe about a year. Uh, about a year yeah. Okay, yeah. and, and I then, was there about three years, I think, or you know, at totally. the time I was in India. Yeah, in actually in Turbanamala, I was in India longer, but yeah. Okay, and so at some point after a year, mm -hmm. a friend gave you a copy of I Am That, the Indian edition, prior to the yes English one being printed, and you realized that this was a master who was living. Yes, and so you took the five-hour bus ride. Yes. Uh, up to Madras and then however many hours train ride. I think a couple of days to be honest. Couple of that. Days. In those days, yes. Yeah. <clears throat> to or Bombay. Yeah. Yes. And so then then just walk yeah. us through that initial meeting. Yes. Well I I found his address. Um I can't remember how I did it was in the book or whatever, but I he was living in a very fairly poor it was a poor area of Mumbai, Bombay at the time. And I went to his place and I, it was a, it was a big tenement building. And I think, I don't know if your listeners know, but he was, he was not an educated person formally, 
and he had been um, he had a little shop corner store which is very very common in India and they sell and he was known as the beady waller actually that's what people used to call him because he sold these little Indian cigarettes called beadies mm. but by the time I saw him he was already 80 I think or 79 and he wasn't doing that his son was but he lived above the shop so he lived in this quite dark at the time tenement building and I entered this building and and I found the apartment that he was and I knocked on the door and I'll never forget this his daughter it was his daughter actually who opened the door and I had bought some oranges <laughs> right, to give him and she just pointed upstairs and uh, she took me in and there were the, what they had done is built him um, it was a it was a quite a small apartment uh, so there was a mezzanine they built a mezzanine floor and there was quite steep staircase going up so I went up just went up the staircase and it was actually amazing because he was sitting there he was uh, on the floor on a mat on a it was a traditional sort of animal skin I think but uh, he was sitting on the floor just cross-legged and he looked over to me and he has these amazing eyes very penetrating bright eyes and he's a little he was quite a small person and it was amazing, Jeff, because I had never done this before. I wasn't a particularly devotional person, but I immediately touched his feet. And I don't know why I did that, but I did. It was without thought. And I gave him my oranges and I spoke Hindi a little bit. So we spoke and he said um, he was beautiful. He was very welcoming. And he said to come back a bit later in the morning. I must have been there early in the morning because I think he said come back right on 10 o'clock or mid-morning. So I did that. I, yeah, I went I went back down. We we talked a little bit, I think, just... And uh, and I came back and then... Um, oh, that's right. He, 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 meanwhile, had called the translator who was a very, really nice man. He, mm. he's, he's no longer, but his name was Mr. Patan, very humble, very um, beautiful uh, Marathi man. And he came every day to, to translate. Mm. That's amazing. So at that time, mm. I Am That had been published in India, but it doesn't sound like Nisargadatta was a particularly well-known teacher if he was just living above the, the smoke shop and there was nobody there. Yeah, I mean, there were Indian people did come. Uh, he, had, he had Indian um, disciples. Uh, so I can't, to be honest, I think a couple people came during the period I was there. I think I was there two, three weeks. Um, there wasn't any Westerners. And Mr. Patan came every day. But what he did have, and this was really, really amazing, is I discovered after a few days, he invited me to come really early in the morning, like at six or something, because he always saw, he had these, dash, these sort of dialogues at, at, at inquiry periods at 10. And, um, and he invited me to come for the early morning, and it was utterly different. And it was, I went up there, and there's these, these sort of, loud bhajans and people banging cymbals and lots of incense and it was full of the local neighborhood people in, in his uh, house in his little mezzanine yeah <laughs> okay. they were all there and he was sitting up i mean he was always sitting on the floor when he when he worked with people but he was sitting up on this chair in a corner and they were you know sort of um listening to him he he would give a a teaching on one of the texts 
written on one of the scriptures every mm. morning. And then they would do this big sort of celebration, you know, bhajans and things and banging and lots of incense. And then that would be it. So I would go to that and it was, you could barely hear anything. You know, it was, it was so loud and completely different, but he did that for the local people because he was their, their guru. So, and he would, fulfill the function of that too, I think after, I mean, I can't remember everything, but uh, I remember he would also talk to them and they would, you know, bring their stories to him and ask him for their blessings, et cetera, et cetera. So he performed that. And he, he told me later that, um, yeah, he kind of was aware he had different roles at different times for different, mm -hmm. different people. Yeah. Mm. And so that was an early morning sort of daily service. Yes. For, yeah. for the local people. Yes. Mm -hmm. and, and then you would meet with him again a little later on. Yes. Although he, because I think there was no one else really around and we, because I was there, he very, again, I think I was really very lucky, Jeff, very fortunate because he invited me to often to stay. Cause after that, his daughter would bring him up his breakfast, which was really a bowl of suji or something, you know, some gruel and he would eat that. And, and sometimes he would share that with me. You know, he's incredibly sweet, really mm. sweet. So I would be sitting there. This is probably about a six or seven days in once he, he'd known, got to know me a little bit. And then we would um, go for a walk often in the, just go down into the bazaar and he'd take a little walk and he had a little cap on his Marathi cap and he had his stick and uh, it was very sweet, again, because I was probably the only Westerner for a long, you know, in that neighborhood. Um, we always had a bunch of little kids, you know, following us and he'd wave his stick at them and you know, pretend to be fierce. And it was very <laughs> sweet. There was an intimacy and sweetness. And then we'd go back and then we would start the talk. And, and when you, so you go for a little walk and, mm -hmm. and you go through the bazaar. So I imagine that, you know, if I... Yeah. Imagine India was pretty bustly. Um, at yes. least Mumbai was probably pretty bustly at the time. Yeah. And did you talk during your walk or were you just walking in silence? No. Yeah, we just, um, well, it was not really silent because everything was so noisy. Of course, right. But, um, but we weren't engaged in conversation because also my, I, my Hindi wasn't that good to be mm. able to really do that. But we would, he would comment on things and, you know, we'd buy something, buy some biscuits or, you know, this sort of thing. We'd chat in that way, but yes. um, comment on things, etc. And uh, yeah, that was, the, and then we'd go back and, and I think we went straight into really talking then. Mm. So you would go back and then when you got back and you'd sit down, the translator would be there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Or his daughter would bring up some chai, and then the translator would come. Yeah. And then they would. And then when you were in those private conversations after the walk in the bazaar, was it uh, you were more or less having spiritual discussions with him? Completely. Yeah. And and do you what? Yeah. What do you remember about what you um, what, what you were sharing with him and what he was sharing with you yeah. then? Well, it was, it, was, it was interesting, Jeff, because right from the start, because what I just described to you was as we, I think, probably got to know each other. And again, it's 44 years ago. I, I can't remember the exact time frame. But when I first started to meet him out that first day when I met him and then he said, come back, he was just absolutely ready to go. That's how he approached it. It wasn't casual. It wasn't... Uh, 
you know, it was just, he was really ready to go. It wasn't formal in a sense that, you know, now I'm the teacher, you know, he, he was very unselfconscious, mm-hmm. beautiful person, but he would sit and I would sit and right on the floor in front of him. And uh, he would just, he, I would, I mean, in the beginning, what my memory was, I had been doing all this practice, right? This deep practice. And I had, um, I'd had quite a lot of experiences, different types of experiences, but I was, I really felt like I, I wanted the full, what I thought of as the full, full yeah, experience, you know, the full mm. knowledge or the full ex- mm. awakening. And um, so I don't remember exactly, to be honest, the uh, dialogues, but I remember sharing everything with him. I was mm. pouring out and he was, really surprised i think because i was so young and i was western so uh he was surprised at that i remember he was commenting to mr patan about that how young i was that mm. i was so um i had so many questions too mm. he, yeah. so when you say that you were um pouring everything out you were talking about your spiritual life and your experiences and what you were thinking about and your journeys and travels and just everything Not- uh, no, not my journeys and travels. It was literally about more the the kind of practice I was doing. It was, um, yeah, that. Mm. Not about the practice, but the questions that were emerging from that. And yeah. then he was responding to everything that you yes. brought up. Yeah, yeah. And so... Completely. He listened. He really listened. And he... He what he did was he would really listen and then my memory was he would ask a question he would ask a question he really he really wondered he really wanted to understand what were you were where you're coming from and uh he would he would ask questions in a way that would then open things up really open things up mm. and they were he would, a lot of my memory was it was very in, in interrogative his uh, his the way he got you to 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 inquire he would he would ask questions and then I would respond and he would respond. Yeah. I see. And, and so how long did this go on where you would you know, go for your morning walks and then have these more focused meetings afterwards? I think it was every day. My memory was, it was every day for about two weeks, two and a half weeks. Okay. I mean, I think sometimes I didn't go for the walk every day. Sometimes I might go off and have breakfast myself and then come back. You know, it was very unfixed in a way, mm. open. but I would always get there at 10 if I wasn't just staying there with him. And um, that was, that was when he did that. And if other people came, because I think later on, definitely there were other people, the second visit, but the first one, I think there were some Indian came at different times to ask him questions who were mm. but um but not very often i don't mm-hmm. uh, my memory is it was almost unbroken but right. um yes uh, but there were so he yeah he, he would be on you know he would really like ready to go every time you came in and mm. i would by then too obviously from being with him jeff things were moving, you know, things were actually happening right. within my own consciousness, just from the power. I, I am thinking back to it. There was a sense the he was so utterly um, awakened. Right? Mm. So that mm. transmission that we get still from that book was the experience of being with him. So it, he evoked 
that's mm. all I can think of it. He evoked the depth from yourself, right? Mm -hmm. the deepest you so met. And I think over the period, um, thinking about it, I remember my experience was being utterly met, right? Mm. And um, I guess what I want to ask you now, and I find the whole thing very moving. I mean, I, I guess a, maybe a ma more minor question is, to what extent did you, because now, if you look at it now, right, it's 2019, I Am That is a spiritual classic, you know, right. almost without parallel, you know, uh, yes. for, for in its time. And, um, and Nisargadatta is a legendary saint of the 20th century. So you look at it now and you think, oh my God, you, <laughs> you spent two and a yeah. half weeks with him every day. And so yeah. if, if anyone were offered the opportunity to go back in time and do that, you know, you, that would be a priceless opportunity. Absolutely. Yes. And so I'm just wondering, to what extent were you aware of how priceless an opportunity you were in the middle of when you were there with him? Um, interesting. Uh, I'm not sure because, I mean, I think I, I was aware of how, that it was a very precious time to put it mm. that way. I had no idea that he was going to become that famous or, you know, I didn't have that kind of context for it. And I wasn't thinking really in that way, but um, I was really aware I was with a master. I mean, there was mm. no doubt. And I, I had, I also, the other thing, Jeff, is I, I had this deep love for him. Mm. You know, he was, he was, could be very intimidating. Actually, he was very, very direct. <laughs> he was very direct. Mm. Um, and I think some people were later on the second visit. I, they, I saw that that could be this case because he would really say what he felt and he didn't suffer any fools. He didn't suffer inauthenticity at all. He was very direct, but he was never, he was not aggressive. He was, mm. There was nothing aggressive in his being, but he would really say it as it was. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if someone was, he, one of the things that he, he, he insisted was really uh, important was sincerity. Um, I mean, he didn't say that you have to be sincere or anything like that, but that's at, at another time in a conversation, he, he said, well, I can't remember exactly the words, but basically all it took was a guru and this, for the, for the, uh, the, the seeker or the, you know, to be utterly intent you know, mm. utterly earnest. That's all it took. He felt that was essential. You didn't have to do anything else. You didn't have to know anything, but you really had to be, and so had to be sincere in that way or earnest. And mm -hmm. um, if you weren't, or if there was a shadow of someone trying to play intellectual games, anything like that, he would call it out immediately. Um, but in a way, the way he did that, Jeff, and it was, that was also how he worked, um, he did it in a way that you would understand that that was an obstruction to mm. what you're really there for and what you're really looking for. And he, he did it in that way. So it was always an amazing teaching. I never mm. saw him put anyone down. I certainly didn't experience that. And so, because clearly that was many years ago now, yes. mm -hmm. and you know, you've, you've lived a spiritual life ever since. Uh, in different in different forms. Uh, looking back at it now, mm -hmm. what did you? 
how did that time affect you? What did you get from Nisargadatta and from that incredibly intimate opportunity to work with him mm. at such a young age, you know, such a formative time in your path? Right. I think it has probably been one of the, one of the major impacts of my life, actually. I mean, I've thought about that. And obviously, you and I met when we were both stu students of, of Andrew Cohen, which was another very impactful time. And a lot had happened between those two. Um, but I see that period because I don't know when it was probably a weekend, whatever. I actually had this very, very profound, whatever one calls it, Satori awakening experience. Right. So then from then on in after that, that's where we were really talking from and about and in, and you know, that was amazing. So that actually really happens. And I think that it wasn't just the experience of that, but it was the whole experience of being with him. Jeff. He, was when you were with him, it was almost impossible to resist that. Right? Mm. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It mm. wasn't resist him as a person, but it was resist that. And it's interesting, his teaching is, I am that. And he mm. was that. And so one's own experience of being that, of being, was very tangible. Mm. Right? And I think that, so he, and I feel, I mean, I don't think I've always sort of being cognizant of it throughout my entire life. But um, it left an indelible, I feel that period. And then obviously later on I had, you know, took things on with Andrew, but um, I think it left an indelible trust and knowledge, you know, deep prior knowledge, not a knowledge in my mind, but a deep trust in trust and, and, and knowledge, pre-thinking, pre pre-thought knowledge of, um, of the self, really, or whatever mm. one calls it, God, whatever. But mm. that I feel incredibly, I was very, very, very uh, unbelievably fortunate and privileged to have that time and that with him because he was such a master. And, you know, that, that I think has given me, and look, my life has not always been, I would say definitely in a reflection of that, an expression of that, but it has been, there's a, a foundation or, or a, something there that has never mm. left me. So, yeah, and guides my life, I think. My whole life has been right. really exploring that and looking at what, what the relationship between that and life really is. You know? And mm. so it started with him, put it that way. It was an indelible foundation and i guess what what it, what strikes me is is what you're describing is that at that period of your life gave you an uh indestructible confidence in the ultimate you you knew it Yes. Like you said, you may or may not have had contact with it mm -hmm. at all times, but you never doubted its existence. You know, it, right. was, it touched you deeply enough to, to mm -hmm. bring you to a place beyond doubt. Uh, yes. And that's, that's very powerful. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, none of us are perfect, mm -hmm. of course. And of yet, course. if I, you know, from what I, I know you quite well, and I'm thinking about your life, in many ways, it is an expression of that kind of faith. Because, you know, very it's rare for someone to be as single pointedly focused to spiritual pursuit as you have been 
for four decades, really without a break. So that amount of pursuit, regardless of, you know, the, the relative ups and downs of, you know, this year versus last year, the consistency of that pursuit over four decades. I mean, people don't even stay in the same job for four decades. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind stay single pointedly focused on the pursuit of awakening that, you know, that you, you get no cultural or social support for. And especially in the early days when you were doing it, there was even less, you know, it's, right. it's a little easier today because there's a little bit more social agreement around the fact that this is a valuable thing to do. But yeah, I think it's pretty remarkable the, the way that that experience catapulted uh, a life dedicated to the divine. No, that's, that's interesting, Jeff. Yeah, I think that's, that's true. I think that, um, well, I think that that time in India, of which I would say my time with Nisargadatta was really core to that, to, to what you're saying, to get to, you know, uh, yeah, allowing me to, to let go enough, really, because of the, as I was saying, you know, the strength of his own transmission, but the, the awakening power that had the ever evocative power that had, and then the kind of deep trust knowledge that, that, uh, that, that that's never gone. And as you were saying, um, but I think it was also being an Indian. It's interesting what you said that now there's more support for that. Whereas I'm not sure if I totally would see it that way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, um, I question it myself. It was, it was a different era. And um, there was, I mean, it was Ginsburg. It was, you know, there was, it was a different time. And so people all over the West and, and the East were, I mean, when I first went to India, I had no idea I was part of a generation that this was happening. It was a consciousness, you know, consciousness explosion going on an inquiry. Everyone was looking and I didn't know I, when I left, I was living, I was Australian, right? None of my friends, they were far more political. It was when the Vietnam War was going on and they were more political. Uh, I didn't have many friends who had that same interest. But when I got to India, I realized, whoa, there's people from all over here. And many of them came and went and some got very involved in lots of different things. You know, there's a lot of drugs at the time and all of that. And some people really went off the rails actually, but got quite lost. But I felt that we were part of a, a period in history that exploring consciousness. See, I was in India for seven years, which you can never do now. That's the other thing I feel incredibly grateful for. I was able to have that time. You know, I left university, I went to university, I worked, left. That was what I did. And there were a lot of people doing that. It was a less um, utilitarian time in a way too. So mm. people were just doing it because they felt it was really important. Right. Like there was it was something a more calling. idealistic time. It was a more idealistic time. Mm. And so, so then by the time I left India and went West, I went and anyway, that's a whole other story, but lived in a community of people who had, I had met in India and who'd also been in Thailand as monks and nuns and had gathered in the West, right, to do that. Mm. So... I felt, I didn't feel unsupported. And plus most of the people who went through India, there was very few people doing other things other than a lot was studying music. But that again was in a context of a guru disciple relationship, or they were seeking deeply, even if they didn't think they were really, mm. which I was actually one of those. So yeah, I think I w it was a period that 
I think helped. There was something about what was happening in the period. In fact, it was very funny because Steve and I just watched, there's a new film out by Scorsese on Dylan's uh, road trip. Do you remember that? Oh, Rolling Thunder? Yeah, I, didn't, I have not seen the movie, oh, but I do, yeah. I do know it exists. We watched it and I was just like, wow, you know, that was a period. There's a kind of innocence and joy and excitement and exploration and being together was what it was about. You know? right. And they were doing it within the music field and, you know, obviously exploring everything from that. But mm. That's beautiful. I'm, I'm so glad that you brought this up because I think it's a, there's a double-edged sword, right? Because of course, so, so I mean, I, I just to say, you know, you and I for, for two decades were living together in spiritual community and, uh, you know, I always see you as, I mean, the best thing that I can say is you're sort of my older spiritual sister and uh, I have so much respect, you know, for, for your life and what you've done and how I've benefited from knowing you. And I'm aware that, you know, when, when I got started, you know, in the early 90s, which was much later than you, it was still fairly, this was all a little bit fringy, uh, especially yeah. if you were going to take it to the extreme of joining a spiritual community and leaving yeah. the world, yeah. uh, which, you know, not that many people were doing and still not that many people do. Uh, but 15, 20 years earlier, when you were going to India, of course, there was even less people doing it. So, you know, you had to be even more kind of maverick uh, in, in a certain way. And, and of course, you were building on, as you said, a whole history of people who had gone, you know, waves and, yes. you know, that goes all the way back to the transcendentalists uh, yes. and, and their love for the East. And they didn't never travel to the East. It wasn't even really possible then. But they, they were certainly translating and reading the Upanishads uh, and just getting into this. So we're all building and building and building on each. Right. And over time, you know, the East, Eastern spiritual traditions have become much more popular in the West, obviously with the exploding popularity of, of yoga mm -hmm. and, and more recently the, the rise in popularity of meditation and, and some incredible people who were sort of part of your generation right. of, of travelers to India uh, have successfully brought some of these Indian ideas into maybe not mainstream Western culture, but, you know, certainly a larger sphere of Western culture. And so on the one hand, you could look at that and say, well, there's more support for these ideas because, you know, there's plenty of books you can read and there's yoga studios all over the place. And there are a lot of people who are teaching. On the other hand, like you're saying that it's, there's a magic of that earlier period where people were, were having to take such extreme action to pursue it, which, which brings you together like a band at the, you know, you're a band sort of beyond the edge of the norm. And it, it brings that, that sort of idealistic spirit and the shared camaraderie and the, I can, I can kind of imagine what it was like to be part of that kind of magic in, in India in the early days when also I think there was a lot more innocence around some of these ideas and, and maybe also some naivety, you know, that was yeah. you know, needing to be burned <laughs> mm -hmm. away. Mm -hmm. uh, but, 
but on the positive side, innocence and uh, yeah, that's it's an extraordinary time. And then you had seven years to be yes. steeped in that kind of culture is really quite an extraordinary opportunity. Definitely. No, I, I, um, I totally feel that, Jeff. I feel, like I said, when I think about it now and I think, I think I still see it a little differently in a certain way, because when you say that at that time you had to, we had to be more a maverick, more in a certain way that one hand you could say that's true because I mean, I didn't see my family for seven years. Right. Right. And, uh, it was quite radical, but I think there was something happening in the consciousness of the time that provoked that mm. radical without you even thinking this is really radical. It was almost like, I know for myself, it was, um, I had, because when I left, I had a boyfriend and I was in university. I had university friends, but I really want to go alone. And I wanted to go alone. I didn't even know why, but I knew that I needed to find something, meet something, and that it would be easier to do that on my own than constantly referring, you know, to someone from my own culture. It was a sort of instinct, really. And I think that, interestingly enough, at the time, more people took time out than they do now. You know, it was just a different era. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of people now have to fit in their spiritual life or the spiritual practice into another, some other life. <laughs> Whereas at that point, it was the counterculture, right? It was when counterculture sort of uh, explosion was taking place. So there was a lot of rebellion against living a normal life. So in a way, I was part of that wave that was looking to say, hey, we don't want to go down the straight and narrow way at this point. We want to find something really different as a ground for something new, for a new kind of normal, <laughs> so to speak. Um, so in a way, it was, yeah, it was my experience then, although I think you're right, it, you, there was far less... Um, facilities or as far less support you couldn't ring home if you ran out of money you're in big trouble you know all of these kind of things but it was also incredibly inexpensive to live there then but um there was a kind of freedom but people felt they were really also i think wanting to create a different culture and i think mm. that when you said to me that a little earlier in this conversation you said that for four decades, I've sort of been a seeker in a way. I think it's been not quite that. I think that time in India, one of the things of being there was that not that it brought seeking to an end, but I, I, um, that especially that time with Nisargadatta, in a way, did <laughs> in a strange yes. way. And in fact, I, I just want to tell you a very short follow-up story to to my time with him. Is I went back after I had this sort of two and a half whatever weeks. I wasn't quite sure what I was meant to do, right? Because I, I went back to Tiruvannamala and I continued to live the kind of life I was, which was really, you know, doing an enormous amount of practice, but it was a little different. And I, I was trying to remember what was different. And I think it was because I wasn't seeking. I didn't know that at the time, but mm -hmm. something had gotten blown out, you know, that the sense of lack or sense of whatever right. it is that propels you wasn't there anymore. So it was almost like, but I was so young, I didn't know how to, what to do with that. So I continued and I was reading and I, da, 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 and I was meditating, you know, hours and 
but there was something that was a little different. So at a certain point I went back to see him and that was the following year and the book had been published and the little room was full of people, you know, just stacked all around. Mm. And when I went in the door, he saw me and he, he I remember he, he, he lit up actually, he recognized me. Right. And, um, he smacked the floor right in front of him, you know, he sort of banged on the floor and sit down and, and, you know, sort of, I can't remember, but asked me what was happening. And I sort of opened up and I opened up, what I opened up with were really my doubts. I mean, I didn't think of them as that. I thought they were sort of valid questions, but they were coming from this place of something's wrong, right? I'm, mm. I'm not quite sure where I am and da, da, da. And, it was really fascinating, Jeff, because this also reveals something else about his teaching and the way he taught. He was very angry. He exploded. <laughs> I was uh, totally taken aback. And he said something very, very simple. He said um, something along the lines of, it's, if it's hot in Bombay, and he sort of shouted it. And when it's hot in Bombay, it's really, really hot, right? He said, you go to the mountains. That was it. That was the teaching, right? And I was stunned by his anger and I was young. So I was, you know, I was far more focused on that and mm. well, probably you know, what I felt about it and all of that. And uh, he, um, anyway, that was it. And he kind of left me with that. And, and I think, I'd, you know, and then a day, a day later or whatever, he, he looked at me again. He, he looked at me in the, you know, I was sick. I came back in and I was part of, you know, there's probably 20, 30 people in the room, 15 people in the room. And he saw me and he looked at me very directly. And he said, I trusted my guru. I trusted his words. When he said I was free, I trusted it. And I, you know, and I felt he was really telling me something that <laughs> was giving me another teaching and he said he said it took i think it said he said it took him three years something like that but he i never doubted his words and much later at that time i was so young and i was very in a certain way immature obviously i didn't have much experience of of uh, understanding the process even though i was in it um i realized that from his perspective, there were two things, earnestness, this absolute earnestness, he always said was really uh, mandatory, imperative, and, but also that you trusted, you trusted your guru, or you trusted the teaching, or you trusted your own experience of self. Mm. And I realized that's what he was responding to. And he was really like a Zen master in that way, it was almost like a koan, right? It was like, and I realized that what he was saying to me in a way was like the sky's blue you don't doubt that you know it's blue right mm -hmm. so he was really extraordinary in that way and uh yeah when, when he said it when it's hot in mumbai you go to the mountains mm. how would you now explain what the te what that teaching was what was he trying to convey to you with that uh what i what i understood it um was that he was saying look you know, that, that was just saying the sky, if the sky is blue or if the tables, you know, you know, the plant is green or whatever, then you don't question that. You know that. You don't know that. You don't, you know, you respond. In other words, if it's hot, you respond, right? right? You don't have a conversation and a doubt about, about it being right. hot. So I think that's what I understood. He was pointing to the fact he was really, um, um, he was disclosing my 
the kind of doubts and confusion that I had wound round my experience of the time, which as you said, and I think, you know, we've both probably been through so many times over the years is you're not always quite in touch with or have access to that, um, you know, to, to who we are really, you know, in, in an ongoing experiential way. But, um, and I, that had obviously happened, that experience had faded, the, the, the um, experience of that knowledge, but the knowledge hadn't. It was very interesting, which is why I think I had this disquiet. I couldn't just practice as a seeker because something had happened that had taken that away. Mm. I, I, I knew, I knew not with my mind, but with my being Yes, it had been met. And so I was kind of peeling back and going back in and he wouldn't engage me on those terms because they weren't real terms from his perspective. I think that's such a powerful mm -hmm. teaching, you know, because basically mm -hmm. what he's saying is if it's hot in Mumbai, you go to the mountains, right? So in other words, it might be hot. You might not like it. It might not be what you want, but you just go to the mountains. You don't make a big deal about it. You exactly. don't make a problem out of it. You don't question the validity of it. You exactly. just respond and, and keep it simple, you know, exactly. yeah. and simple. And, and, you know, we, yeah. <clears throat> because we have these incredible powers of self-observation and, and also habits of self-criticism and, and doubt, you know, yes. we will tend to get in a whole inner discussion because exactly. all of a sudden it's not the way yeah. I wanted it to be or not the way I thought it was going to be. And, and, and exactly. rather than just accepting that and responding, mm -hmm. I want to get mm -hmm. into a whole conversation with myself and anyone who will listen about why it shouldn't be this way or my doubts about why it's this way. And I think it's exactly. a very interesting simple, direct, mm. sounds a bit fierce in a positive sense, mm -hmm. uh, yes. teaching mm -hmm. that he was delivering. Um, and I can almost feel it when you say it, his initial excitement at seeing you and then yes. your expression of doubt and, and how disappointing it would be. Yes. Know, from, mm -hmm. from his memory, because it sounds like when mm. you were with him before, you were so open. And exactly. That's exactly so right. Mm -hmm. And I came back with my mind, exactly as you said, with the sort of, and it was the classic thing. And it took many, many, many years for me to really, and I think it's very common to understand that your experience, the experience you're actually happening at any one moment doesn't necessarily mean anything. We have all kinds of experiences. And it was just, I think I was so young at the time that that experience of you know, that totally mm. liberating experience of fullness and self. I thought that was going to be it forever that way. And right, of course. Exactly. So it was, um, yeah, so it was many, many years later that I, in fact, was during our time together, really, that time, the time we shared, you know, and in the community that uh, I began to understand that whole movement. Mm -hmm. Right. So the second visit, Mm -hmm. to Nisargadatta, which so these were the two times when you spent time with him. I yes. Mm -hmm. How long was the second visit? And, and now it was in the context of being part of a yes. growing community. How long mm -hmm. were you seeing him that second time? I think it was about, um, it was about a week, I think 10 days. It was, it was mm -hmm. over a period. Uh, mm -hmm. And I was, yeah, I was, yeah, that's right. It was, I see. it wasn't, yeah, and he was working with a lot of people. So I also got to see him work <laughs> with other people, mm -hmm. and um, which was also very powerful, right? And the interesting thing, Jeff, about 
Sagrada that I consider he's such a master too, is that he wasn't fixed. I mean, people, it's true. His teaching was, I am that, right? That's his book. And everything about it, he was wanting people to awaken to that experience. And that's how he expressed it. That sense of, I am that, non-separate non from that, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, but the way he worked with people was completely, it was utterly fluid. It depended on who was in front of him. You know, so he could, he would, people would ask, should I do this? Should I do that? Should I, and it would be a different response every time, but according to where the person was and um, what he saw was, was needed, he wanted them to wake up. So whether if someone was naturally drawn to a certain path, he would encourage them to do that, to do that till it was finished, <laughs> till it was over. Mm -hmm. But again, he, he, he wanted them, he wanted, he was encouraging people in every which way to give everything to that. You know, he, he felt that's all you needed, really. So it didn't matter if you did no practice, didn't matter what practice you did, you know, obviously within reason. But so he, did, he was totally free of any kind of ideology. Mm, that's interesting. So he, he wasn't teaching a specific practice, say, in the way that Ramana Maharshi was tending to teach the, you know, questioning, who am I practice, the self-inquiry practice. No, and I do think even with Raman Maharshi from everything I've read and people, because when I lived there, again, I was really very lucky, Jeff, very, very fortunate because there were still people alive then who had been with him. Mm. He died 24, 24 years before, or 26 years before. And so there were a lot of stories. You could spend time with these very old people who would, you know, just... It was gorgeous. You know, they would share their time with Ramana. And I really got the impression from them too that he was far more fluid, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't like you have to go off and sit in your room and do this uh, inquiry as a, of course, that was his practice. And just as, I mean, that was his teaching. Mm. Just like with Nisargadatta, I am that. It expresses what that teaching points to, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But the way he just wanted you to, to let go, really, to let go mm. of the mind was usually for Westerners, it was the mind. For uh, Indians, it was often different things and sometimes both, you know, each, each way. Right. Um, but often, uh, so he wanted you to let go, whatever it was that was in the way. It could be a huge attachment to something. It could be a big mm. fear. It might mm. be whatever it was. But he would... The interesting thing, my memory was that that would become disclosed through the conversation with him. You'd suddenly be aware of what was blocking. And that often would be the thing that would just, you'd suddenly, that would be it. Yeah. Mm. So he was amazing like that. Yeah. Mm. So, and I just want to be clear, I would never want to characterize you as having been a seeker for 40 years because you were, oh, certainly, no. <laughs> you were certainly a finder when we met. Uh, well, so to speak. Yeah. But, but anyway, the yeah, minor yeah. point, um, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I think I do admire the single pointedness of your focus on spiritual life for those 40 years. You know, that's what I find. So that is unusual. You know, if you, if you take a, a cross section mm -hmm. of the population, it's very few people are as single pointedly focused on living a spiritual life for that long as, as you have been. Uh, and when we met in the early nineties mm -hmm. as, as part of the spiritual community, uh, 
I, I came into that, you were already uh, a figure of some prominence in the, in the community. So someone I looked up to from the start, and then we got to be friends and colleagues and, you know, spiritual compatriots as well as uh, working partners Definitely. for years yeah. and developed a deep love and, and friendship right. that is, uh, was a very significant part of my own growth through that period in many ways. Mine too, uh, Jeff. Yeah. And, and we were focused during those decades mm -hmm. on essentially the possibility that both Ramana and Nisargadatta were espousing, which is the, the direct recognition that beyond, beyond the identity as being a separate individual who has a name and a birthday and characteristics of this, that, and the other thing, deeper than that, the awareness that is coming through the individual, even the awareness of being the individual, is itself a source which is universal. And, yes. and we all are. And yes. so I am that applies equally to, it, it actually doesn't really apply to the, it's not really the individual Jeff saying I am that, you know, it's right. really that source itself recognizing what it is. Exactly. Through this vehicle. And, and I guess I wanted to ask you to reflect a little bit on that particular, you know, that particular articulation of awakening, the one that, that you and I have dedicated so much of our lives to and so much of that together. Where, how do you see that today? What's, mm. what's the relevance of that awakening? And, and yeah, where, because sometimes I feel like I wish it was louder. I wish, mm -hmm. you know, like you were saying, in some, in some ways I can see how today we're more supported spiritually yes. in other ways less in other ways through familiarity these things almost get um occluded they become a yes. little obscure because of the familiarity because right. and and the the true majesty of that kind of recognition and what that means not only for the individual but but more importantly for what it brings into the world uh and you know i love your story and my story and many other mm -hmm. stories that I've heard because whatever time you're in, mm -hmm. that depth of recognition requires a profound leap mm -hmm. beyond the familiar, uh, a leap of faith into the unknown. Mm -hmm. and, and it's that leap, whether you do it leaping to India without any cell phones <laughs> or internet, or you do it leaping into a spiritual community of all kinds of bizarre, <laughs> where all sorts mm -hmm. of bizarre things occur. Whatever is your version of a leap, it, it really requires you to leave the world of the familiar. That's right. If not physically, you know, emotionally, and, and in terms of a reference point, you know, you have to mm -hmm. give up the normal reference point and allow yourself to enter into a sea of uncertainty uh, in order mm -hmm. to be open enough to be available for the kind of recognition that's going to radically alter that's everything right. you ever thought. And I would just love to hear you reflect on, mm -hmm. on sort of the, the state of that kind of recognition today, the, the significance of it for the world and, 
you know, I, I'm doing this interview with you because I really want to inspire people. Mm-hmm. I, want to, I want to inspire them to want to let go in right. this way and, and, to, and to feel, you know, I loved what you said earlier, you know, when you were doing this, it didn't feel like a risk, you know, and when I left my career and my wife and joined a spiritual community, in retrospect, it looks like an insane risk. But at the time, it didn't feel yeah. like a risk at all. It just felt like what I had to do. And I, right. the fact that I didn't know why I had to do it was irrelevant. The compulsion yes. was so strong. There was just no other choice. And, and then the question is, because I believe that many people, that that compulsion is alive in many people. Yes. And mm-hmm. some people are following it, and some people are following it to an enormous degree. But I think many more people that there are some layers that don't allow the full bloom of that compulsion, the full bloom of their passion for divinity to Mm -hmm. manifest Mm -hmm. as the kind of leap that would potentially propel them into this kind of realization. So that's a long introduction to the fact that I would love to hear after, you know, look, you've got such an incredible perspective after all these years and all the things you've seen and are continuing to do even to this day, yeah, how do you see this this realization? What's its place in the world, and and how can it be pursued in the current times most effectively? Yeah, big, really big questions. Exactly. Um, <laughs> very big. Um, but I think Jeff, it's interesting because just to say, I think we recognized each other as being when you were describing our time together as people who this is this is really what life is about i think there's a consuming passion that is never whether one's seeking to look for it or one has to whatever degree been fortunate and privileged or whatever enough to to have that seeking met it's not over then as you know then i think but what does happen is that what i think it i mean just to how, how to go here I think it's so core to human existence and it contains the keys to how we can actually live together on this very complicated, very complex uh, planet, you know, at this time, particularly this time in life. I, th- I feel this, the, this is not just the experience, it's that. There's a deep, as you know, when one's seeking, they were propelled by this passion, right? It's a, a passion for something. And even as you said, we don't necessarily know what that is. Um, and that to me overwhelms the fears and the hesitations if we give ourselves to it completely, which is why I think Nisargadatta also, that's, he didn't say that, but that's what he meant, I think, by earnestness, utter earnestness, means that you give this more, you just give yourself to it. And my sense is that it brings, one of the things it does is that it takes time, obviously, to trust that, I guess, but, um, and to not make the kind of mistakes I was making with him this second visit, but it provides this kind of deep, it's so deeply whole and so deeply positive without, on, a, on the most fundamental existential level, that I think it frees the human being up to really respond and be there, be present for life itself, and therefore responsive, right, 
to life in a very potentially very creative way. And when I say creative way, that could take any kind of form. But I feel a lot of the issues we have today, if this was at the heart of it, you know, if we were more people were awakened and more of the people that were driving things, shaping things, had that had that awakening or had that knowledge or whatever, then things could be very different. So I, I, I'm very, very interested and always have, I think particularly the time when we spent in the community, what attracted me actually to Andrew Cohen was he was very interested fairly, fairly soon in. Initially his teaching, as you know, was very similar to the traditional Advaita Vedanta teaching of Nisargadatta Ramana. But he very quickly, I would say within a couple of years, was interested in what was the relevance of that for human life, for life, and particularly for collective life, like what, what, and that really rang a bell for me. And I think, um, and that still is, that's what drives me. I guess endless potential, endless um, possibilities, endless ways that we can do things that are very related to that experience. I think it's completely relevant to the human, to human experience and to how we can come to solutions and how we can think of new ways of being together, how we can actually be together. Because when you, as you know, part of the, the, the positive side of our experience in the community, and as you said, there were many crazy and not good sides, but the positive side is we got to experience together as a collective the potential of, um, of what can happen when you have a group of people who have stopped war in a way, in one way to think, to look at it, they, the kind of angst of being a, the separate, a separate person comes to an end. It doesn't mean you don't have all kinds of ex experiences emotionally. Of course you do. We all do. But that angst, that existential angst comes to an end. And when that comes to an end, an enormous space opens up that's very, energetic is my, my experience. It can be extraordinarily still, but even in that stillness, there's a kind of, you know, potential and a you know, dynamism to it. And I think that the nature of that consciousness is very positive. I don't mean, you know, it's, 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 it's inherently integral or whole, I think. And so the way one engages with the world, the way one sees the world is far more contextually, naturally, just naturally. And you begin to see things, connections and ways things can happen that are not coming from your own potent, your own individual angst and fears and desires and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's, and I think that's tremendously, I think that's what we need. We need more of that uh, in the world. That's fantastic. Um... Very powerful. And I, I want to just pick up on something as we sort of move to a close in our conversation, which I'm now seeing is, I think, probably the first of numerous uh, that we mm -hmm. will need to have, because there's so many things I want to keep talking right. about. Um, but earlier, you spoke about going to India and, and how lucky you felt, how, how grateful you felt for the fact that you arrived and there were these people there and everybody was so open and open-hearted and interested. And you were essentially, you mm. arrived into a community of, of spiritually inspired individuals uh, and, and you were experiencing the benefits of that 
the shared collective field of energy that was being created by such amazing people. And, and I was just now thinking about my own introduction to uh, this spiritual community with Andrew Cohen uh, and, and coming into that, you know, the thing that initially compelled me to leave my life, you know, my box, I had a very mm. normal life of white house, white picket fence, That's you know, right. career, yeah. two cars, uh, wife, you know, the whole mm. normal, as normal as normal can be. And, and over the course of about a year, I left everything. What really compelled me, like what the straw that broke the camel's back was, was the first time I actually spent with the other people in the community. Mm -hmm. And I experienced something I had never experienced anywhere, which is what happens at that time. This particular gathering was about 25 people and we were doing some work together. And I felt like being in, the, in, in a field of people who are like-minded in that way mm -hmm. and who, who have recognized to an extraordinary degree that this spiritual pursuit and the pursuit of divinity is what human life is about. It's, it's, it's somehow, as you said a minute ago, it's so integral at the core of being human. And, and to be with people who are recognizing that, honoring it, and, and devoting themselves to it, the, the incredible sense of upliftment and inspiration that I experienced. It was like, oh my God, why would I want to live on any other planet besides this one? You know, the one that was being created. And, and of course, now that I'm, you know, that our community is no longer together and I'm wanting to inspire people to right. come together in that way, you know, and, and whatever forms make sense today because life changes and everybody moving to a property in Western Massachusetts may not be the times anymore. Uh, right. Right. Probably for the better. Yes, I think I'd agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, that what's the, what's the version of coming together today that will allow us to engage in a way in which, which all of our earnestness mm -hmm. and inspiration and devotion to the divine and single pointed focus on, mm. on expressing mm. this profound degree of recognition of what's sacred will, will mingle together and, and infuse all of us and, and so that it will become a kind of co-inspiring, co-creative mm. mm -hmm. generator for further awakening. I mean, that's, that's the compulsion that, drives me more than anything else you know I, yes. I sometimes say more than being a teacher I mean I'm often in the role of teaching but really more than being a teacher I see myself as a as a community builder community yes. organizer and a, and, and a, a school builder really and right so I would love to hear because we worked for many years building yeah. educational programs and 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 organizing a global community of people and a, trying to extend that in-person experience of, of yes. spiritual camaraderie to a wider audience. So, so I would love any final thoughts you have about, about that kind of gathering and, and what that might look like today and, yes. and value it might have for people today. Mm -hmm. Wow. 
I mean, another big question. It's fascinating, Jeff, because um, I guess I'm still thinking about that in a way. Um, because I, from the lessons we learned, the things that went wrong with that, and I've since discovered that has, you know, that we weren't the first to do that, to have that. But exactly what you said, the, 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 the core of that, that the kind of union that we experienced and the, the creativity in that, the freedom, the love, and the joy, actually, which was when you said you first were drawn into it and what's possible in that, because there's enormous possibility in that creativity. Um, it really is, you know, because people are engaging without wanting anything from each other, right? That's one of the things I, I felt, our memory is like, wow, there was so much trust between us at our best times. And of course that got very distorted and et cetera, et cetera. But at its purest time, its best time, there was an enormous amount of trust and lack of preoccupation about self. That was, and so when you have a lot of people with that, so how to do that? Because we obviously did that because we were in a very, as we know, enclosed community. We were very extraordinarily focused. We led a very austere life in a way and a very, you know, very focused as similar to the life I lived in India on my own. Um, but I think it's interesting. I think it's moved. I don't, I think there's a lot of those kind of communities, particularly in a, in a Western setting can be problematic the way we did uh, for the obvious reasons. Um, and yet I think community, I think finding like-minded people and like-minded doesn't mean you all think the same, but you share this, what you're talking about. There's a recognition at a soul level or however one talks of it, self level. Uh, you know, finding those people and being, you know, seeking those people out and spending time with those people in whatever form, whether that's small groups, larger groups, online groups, but I do think in person is very important too. I think it's critical because it's, um, yeah. And I think that it's, we're challenged today because there's been such a history as we know of cults and uh, part of our community had very cultish aspects in the end, although I don't feel it was whole completely, you know, there are a lot of cults and cults, but it, um, it's difficult. It's a difficult model. And also I think the other thing that when I look back at what we did, what, what, what we engaged in, it's very easy for a community of that sort to become very inward focused and even though we, we, our motto in a way, or our, you know, our, our sort of, our la, you know, our sort of tagline was that consciousness, the relation between consciousness and culture, which is still the driving force for me. That's, that's what really drives me is that, that relationship. Um, we weren't, you know, we tended to be very inward. We didn't, people didn't go out. People didn't really develop their own expressions independently enough anyway. And um, given we were together almost three decades. Uh, so I think, I mean, just to say, how do we do that? I think community is really, really important. I think there's a great hunger for it because we also live, as we know, in a world that's incredibly, a lot of isolation, a lot of hyper-individualism. Um, so wherever someone can find others to gravitate. And I think it's, it's very, very important. And I think, you know, I, I appreciate the work you're doing because you're, you're doing that. You're trying to create that community online, but uh, I'm finding it in lots of different ways, actually. And I have different 
circles that overlap and some don't overlap, but this idea of coming together with like-minded people, like-hearted people is very, very important. And sometimes that can be around, um, it can be around a project, it can be around an idea, it can be around creating a new system or whatever, you know, whatever it is, it can, but the heart of it, to me, what makes it different is what you're talking about here. The heart of it is this sort of sense, shared sense of the, whatever one calls it, the divine, the sacred, at the core of it, you know, and the core of us. I think, um, but I think that's really important. I think there is a developing hunger for it too. I see that here in London and there's different things going on and you see that's what people really want. And when it, when people do come together, it's profound what happens. Thank you. Um, you know, you know, uh, of course, you know, many people who know me know that I was originally trained as an engineer. And the first lesson I learned as an engineer was that experiments never fail. <laughs> they, they just end. Mm -hmm. And then you collect the data and create a new experiment. And I don't think all the data has been collected yet on our collective experiment, but you know, some of the data has been collected. So yeah. we'll have to have another call to, to yeah. speak about that because that is a complicated uh, topic, but an important one, I think, you know, I where think it is too. And I think it's things worked and what things didn't and why exactly. is really no, exactly. important to sort out. Yeah, exactly. No, I think that's great, Jeff. And just to say, I, I, one, one of the things now five years on, I think, or whatever it is for me, getting on six probably, um, what I find very interesting is that that, that seed, that spark, that what we shared, that living presence that we were sharing together mm. and depth um, is actually after, you know, there's a long period of turmoil and some people still is, but is beginning now to manifest in different ways, in, which is beautiful, right? Mm. In different ways, amongst different groups of people, different, uh, really, really interesting. And I think, I think it's still early for, you know, it's early on, um, as you said, for the, I don't think the data has come in completely right. or been integrated uh, <laughs> yet completely, but it's happening, which is really amazing. You know? That's, that's absolutely true. Yeah. So, yeah. so Mary, Thank you for talking today. Uh, you are a true sister in every sense. And of course, I love you dearly, as you know. And I can honestly say, I wouldn't, I would be someone else if I hadn't had our relationship. You are definitely a person who has had a big impact on me in many, many ways. And I feel very grateful for our friendship. Well, thank you, Jeff. I feel, I mean, very, very, very touched by that. And um, I would say it's fairly reciprocal. <laughs> I feel very, I, I've always appreciated um, the brother, sister, brother, sister, spiritual brother, sisterhood we've had and shared. And it's wonderful to talk again. It's, <laughs> it's really great. Yeah, I love, yes. love this. Love to explore this and you know, open it up. So we'll do another one soon. Absolutely. Yep. I'd love, love to. Thank, Thank you, Thank you Jeff. so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.